Advent. Hallelujah. Advent means the arrival of someone significant. A, a notable person is coming. And the Christian tradition of Advent came in the Middle Ages. And it signified uh, a time to consider the arrival of King Jesus. And in the midst of the busyness of Christmas seasons, December, life, everything that's going on, it's a time to uh, take a moment and just consider who Christ is and what he brings with us. So we are doing the candle of hope today. Christ is the personification of hope. We're doing a message on hope uh, today as well. We're going to find out that the church was hopeful for the birth of Christ. God's people were hopeful for the birth of Christ. Uh, they're also hopeful for his return. So Advent actually first came around around the 5th, 6th century uh, AD, and it was for Christ's return. And the church at the moment is actually in a period of Advent continually, where we're waiting for Christ to come back. So his birth, he initiated his kingdom. When he comes back, he's going to bring his kingdom into fullness. So we're going to teach through the four uh, elements of Advent. They're the four Sundays before Christmas. I'm going to get into hope now. Our lives are full of hope. Some things are more trivial. For me, I hope I don't come last at fantasy football. Uh, that was hoping too much, I found out. Jerry? Where's Jerry? I'm playing him this weekend, and he's already ahead of me. Uh, the other ones might be, I hope he asks me to homecoming. I've never thought that, but apparently that's another hope that people have. Uh, to much more serious ones. I hope the chemotherapy works. I hope at some point I will be able to carry a child to term. I hope the pain goes away. And our hope is based in something happening, something coming about. And the outcome of it dramatically impacts the quality of our life. Some of the things that we hope for, like me hoping not to come last at fancy football, is really, really unlikely. Some other things we hope for are possible, some are probable. Uh, the Bible has hope. There's a golden thread throughout it. And it is a certain hope. Biblical hope is a certain hope. And we're going to go through that today. A vision of God impacts our view of hope. Different life circumstances happen around us, and we just, God just seems smaller or more distant. And when that happens, our despair increases, our hope decreases. The darkness goes up, the light goes down. So as I'm teaching on hope today, I'm going to try my best in the time I have, with the voice that I have, with the no hearing that I have, to talk about the gospel, the history of salvation, and then the hope that we have with Christ, and then the hope that we have in Christ. Before I do, I'm going to open us with prayer. Will you bow your heads? Father God, you give us a living hope in Jesus. You give us a hope of redemption. You give us a hope of restoration. Lord, that the world as it is is not the way it's supposed to be and that there is a better time yet to come. Thank you for the birth of your Son. 
that we may focus upon your goodness and the hope that he brings this Christmas time. In Jesus' name, amen. So first one I look at is uh, hope before Christ. So the gospel story has four acts. Act one, creation. I'm not going to go into that. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Act 2, the fall. That's Genesis 3. And then from the rest of the Bible, there's this continuous storyline of redemption, or God's promise of redemption, redemption happening with Christ, and then this promise of restoration coming. Okay, so throughout the Bible, after the fall, redemption, the hope of it, how it happens in Christ, and then how we look forward to restoration. There's lots of hints of redemption and restoration, even in the fall. I'm going to read two quickly out to you. Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, and then I'm going to go on to Genesis 3, verse 21. So as God is cursing the snake, who is the personification of the devil, he says these things to him. Genesis 3, 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, theologians after Christ have said that this is the proto-evangelium. I think that's how they say it. I'll say it in an English accent, it sounds correct. Uh, <laughs> it's a foretaste, it's a prediction, a foreshadowing of Christ, that one of Eve's children would crush, stamp on the head of the snake, deal a fatal blow to the devil. And the snake would bite his heel, which would be a pretty significant injury. So there's a sense of an offspring is going to come, even in the curse of the snake. And then when God, before he casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, uh, he clothes them. Genesis 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Clothing throughout the ancient Near East means you're giving someone your inheritance. So Joseph's long-hemmed garment, why his brothers were really annoyed as he was getting the inheritance. So the inheritance was sewed into the hem of the garment. But in any case, when he clothes Adam and Eve, there is a hint, there's a glimpse that he's still going to give them the inheritance. As we then work through the Old Testament, we have much more clear promises of God. God's promises are typically, I will be your God and you will be my people. Pretty much summarize most of God's promises. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he has specific binding contracts or covenants with people. And it's where God says, this is absolutely going to happen. This is what I'm saying to you. This is what I need you to do, and this is what I will do for you. The modern-day equivalent is, let's say, a mortgage. Uh, the first one we get with a much clearer picture of redemption and restoration is Genesis 12. It's the covenant with Abraham who becomes Abraham. It's critical to the whole storyline of the Bible, the whole history of salvation. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. So we heard about the offspring being hinted in the curse of the snake. Here's a bit more about the offspring. 
Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A more specific allusion to offspring being part of redemption. Redemption being drawing people back into that full relationship with God. And then it gets even more specific in terms of what Abraham's requirements were going to be and then what God was going to do for his requirements. comes in Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, gives Abraham's part. It says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I'll make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So Abraham's role was to walk before God faithfully. That means have a continual relationship with God, to never turn your back on God. And the simple one of being blameless. God's part, verse 7. So he says, hey, you need to do this. And God says, I'm going to do this. He says, I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Throughout then, the whole of the Old Testament, there are many people that would seem to be the offspring that God is talking about. Even the greatest king, David, like, is he going to be the one that can be blameless? Is he going to be the one that has this ongoing relationship with God? And time and time and time again, we see people being unfaithful. And time and time again, we see God being completely faithful. So there's this constant tension with God's people, which is how are you going to redeem us? We know you're going to give us an offspring, and we know that we can't commit to the covenant ourselves. We can't be blameless. We can't have this perfect relationship with you. So it's almost like the whole of the Old Testament is pregnant with this expectation of God sending someone, sending uh, an offspring of Abraham, an offspring of Eve, that will perfectly uh, be blameless, perfectly walk with Christ. Now, the role of a king uh, is to uh, bring God's rule, bring his kingdom to bear on the people. And Israel was continually calling out for a king. Oh, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And he gave them David, and David was horrendous, as were the other kings following him. We then get to the birth of Christ. So that was a really quick bit of gospel explanation, history of salvation. We're going to now look at hope with Christ. And Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he's basically announcing the king has come. Like the one everyone has been waiting for, this is him. Says it very clearly in the birth narrative. Uh, an aside, if you want to see how Christ fulfills uh, the Old Testament, uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written specifically to a Jewish audience to say Christ is the Messiah. Luke, I'm just going to work through uh, his book today, his birth narrative. Listen to how 
clear, God is making it, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you're a guy and your wife has her hair changed, you need lots of clues to help you realize, oh, yeah, I like your hair. God knowing that guys are particularly dumb <laughs> does more clues and hints than you could ever possibly imagine about who Jesus is going to be. Uh, Gabriel visits Mary. Elizabeth affirms the Christ to Mary. Zechariah does a prophecy. Uh, the shepherds, the heavenly host, regale them and send them to Jesus. Simeon and Anna do prophecies about Christ. Christ was even born in Bethlehem, which was predicted in Micah 5.2. And if those uh, foretellings of the birth were not enough, Jesus himself, when he announces his ministry, specifically quotes from a uh, a text which is about the Messiah, Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We are now in a position as we look towards Advent with hope. Yes, there was the hope that Christ's king was being born, or sorry, God's king was being born, that his kingdom was being started. We're in the advantage point that we know of the historical birth of Christ, we know the historical life of Christ, the historical death of Christ, and the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And they are further proof uh, that Christ was the Messiah. There are 48 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that Christ fulfills, many of which he had no control over. 48. They say for one person to fill eight of those prophecies would be one in a quadrillion chance. Christ specifically fulfills 48. Equally, if that assurance wasn't enough, scholars have looked at the Old Testament and seen all the different foreshadowings of Christ and said there are 353 prophecies fulfilled with Christ. So with Christ's birth, the kingdom had come. It was going to be the birth of the Messiah. God wanted everyone to know. Like the new age was breaking in. Redemption was being purchased. But the tension is, restoration hasn't yet happened. So in Christ... Uh, we are still, uh, we have creation, then we have fall. We are stuck in our sin unless we accept forgiveness from Christ. When we accept the forgiveness of Christ, that's the hope with Christ, uh, we have redemption. Then we're being renewed on the inside. That moves us towards restoration. Anyone? Yeah. Uh, so we have this tension. The Jews were waiting for Christ's kingdom to come and to be fully consummated. Christ said, no, my kingdom's here. I'm starting it, but I'm going to come back before it's fully consummated. So we live in this already, not yet, tension of hope. Now, hope in Christ is the third type of hope. This is hope for the redeemed. For those who do not yet know Christ, there's hope with Christ. For those who do know him, it's hope in Christ. There's three types of hope. The first one is a living hope. 
a living hope. We get this from Colossians 1, 27. I'm going to read this out for you now. I'm going to read out three different quotes for the three different types of hope that we have in the New Testament in Christ. If you're so inclined, you could write these down for later reading. It's the hope of a new covenant in Christ. It says this, verse 27, chapter 1 of Colossians. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Read that again. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, God wasn't just saving his people. He was making, we find out the mystery of the gospel, he's making Jews and Gentiles all one people. And that God, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He fulfills it through Christ so much more than that promise we could have ever dreamed, just understanding that promise. It says Christ is in us. Christ is living within us, and he is our hope of glory. Remember the offspring was men to walk uh, before God. That means to kind of always have a relationship with God, to not turn your back on him. This is how good God makes it with his side of the covenant. God himself, is present in you if you put your faith and trust in Christ. God is present directly, and God is present personally in the lives of his people. So we are his offspring. We are able to walk before him. We are able to be blameless because of Christ. So he is our hope of glory. The second type of hope we have in Christ is an eternal hope. Again, feel free to jot this down. It's 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 Peter 1, and then verses 3 and 5. So we looked at hope before Christ, when there was this expectation of a Messiah. There's hope with Christ, which is redemption is offered through him. Then there's hope in Christ. And this is the eternal hope that we have. Verses 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an eternal inheritance. Not just has God provided it, but he's also protecting it. We put our faith and trust in God. He's living within us. And he's holding on to us. That is a God who answers, not only keeps his promise. I've learned with God, it's so good, it's true. You live in a fallen world, you so often think that's too good to be true. When you find out about God and the gospel, it's so good, it's true. This is what the great God does uh, with his promise to us. 
the final type of hope, it's a biblical hope, is a certain hope. A quick bit about certain hope. A certain hope is based on God, who is unchanging. It's based on God's character, which is unchanging. From the beginning of time, God had this plan with through his Son, he would unite everything in heaven and on earth under Christ as King. And he's fulfilling that plan. And he's going to make that happen. It's based on his character. We see throughout the Bible, throughout our own lives, even when we are unfaithful, that God is faithful. So it's a certain hope based on his character. There are times when our view of God, because of our current situation, is diminished, and our hope seems smaller. Candidly, the last week has not been full of hope for me. When you can't hear, you're thinking, what use am I? There were times in the last week when I tried to focus on God as much as I could, that my hope came back. So when I pursued his presence, it came back. If I just stayed in my world of silence, this is my ninth day in abject silence. Um, I'm speaking to you uh, as someone who struggles with hope in the midst of suffering. But I know when I'm with him, my hope comes back. Do you know what I was most looking forward to when I couldn't hear? I was most looking forward to coming back here. I was most looking forward to coming back here to feel the love of different people, to have lots of people praying for me. And whether I can hear or not, you're aware of the love of God and how that's brought through the people here. So the certain hope is based on God's character. As a new believer, I stood on this so, so much. Uh, Romans 8, please write this down for future reading. Romans 8, and it's verses 18 to 39. I'm going to read three gems, uh, verses 18, 24, 28, before I read a longer eight verses. This is the hope that we have in Christ. This is the hope that's given to us through the birth of Christ. This is the hope that we have because we know God is coming back. Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 24. For in this hope, he's talking about the Spirit, God's Spirit being within us, but in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. But who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This, uh, this speaks to you in the midst of darkness. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Reading that this week made me realize that it's not some kind of accident that as distressing as it is to have two ear infections in both ears when you already have a degenerative hearing condition, that God is not going to waste that. And then verses 31 to 39... And I've been, the privilege of doing this message this week was uh, spending time in this. So when darkness closes in, when despair rises, when our image of God gets smaller, know this. 
verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against them whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are... That was the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Uh, We are not just God's offspring. We're not just his people. We're not just his offspring. We are his beloved children. And that is significant. God wants us to have a full life now. That restoration, we've been redeemed, that inner restoration spiritually happening. And knowing in the fullness of time, it's a down payment that we're going to be fully redeemed. For the sinner who doesn't yet know Christ, not the sinner who's become a saint, uh, for the sinner who doesn't yet know Christ, biblical hope is certain. You can hope you're good enough. I used to hope I was good enough if there was a God. That is nothing to base uh, eternal security on. There is a sure and certain hope through Christ Jesus. If we've had a life full of suffering, it seems perfectly reasonable to think, what is the point of hoping? I'm just going to be disappointed. Why get excited? I'm just going to be let down. Like If I have the worst case scenario in my head, all news is good news. It's a great survival tactic. But it's not the life God has for you if you're his beloved child. Yes, you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But he wants you to see that there are green pastures ahead. He wants you to see that there's still waters as he's leading you there. He wants you to see the table that he has prepared for you. How he'll anoint your head with oil. He has so much more for us than just a pessimistic attitude. And candidly, the more I focus on my despair and my present circumstances, the worse life gets. The more I focus on who God is, the better and more manageable life gets. So as we walk this journey of life, God doesn't want us to have just a pessimistic attitude. Because if we lose hope, we stop. And we know where that ultimately leads. I want you to know uh, you are gifted. As we apply this text, you are gifted to share the hope that you have with someone else. You are gifted to share the hope that you have with people here. 
I came along today thinking, I'm going to be pretty useless. It's going to be embarrassing for me. I'm not going to know what people are saying. It's going to be awkward. And I thought, well, God has equipped me to do the one thing that I can do, which is speak. I cannot do what anyone else can do, which is hear. And then each one of us, God, in the midst of our own situations, has something that we can give everyone else. Does that make sense? There's something as, uh, as disabled as you think an area of weakness in your life makes you. Typically, that's what God most uses as the point of his gospel, of his love, and of his redemption, and of his restoration. So I want you to know here, whatever you're going through, the spiritual attack will be, God's not going to do anything with this. I promise you. In him, you're more than a conqueror, that nothing will separate you from his love. And you have a tremendous amount to give us as a church. Before I do a response, a, a, a quick gospel analogy. I'm talking of a certain hope. It can feel a bit like, do I have to will this up within myself? Our hope is based on the historical person of Jesus Christ. It's 2018, our calendar has been based on him. This isn't some kind of mythical figure. Our faith is based on evidence of the birth of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Spend some time looking some of those stuff up if you like. The reality, though, is that none of us will know we were really saved through Christ until we meet him face to face. Does that make sense? You can only ever really know if you came back from the dead. One person did, and he said, yep, it's me. It's a bit like taking a train. You take a train from Wheaton, and you want to get train to Chicago. You are not just going to randomly jump on any train, but you can look at all the evidence. You can buy your ticket. You can ask a conductor. You can look at the uh, timetable. You can get on the train. You can ask someone on the train, is this going to Chicago? You won't actually know until it gets to Chicago. The certain hope that we have in Christ is very, very similar to that. It's certain, but we won't fully know until we meet him face to face. But we are, amongst other people on the train, who can represent that hope to one another. Does that make sense? We can encourage each other along. You may think, I'm just a passenger on the plane, a train. God will use you, I promise but we represent as a community the certainty of that hope for one another. And it's as certain as you can be about any mode of belief. It's based on historical evidence on the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So it's a certain hope based on God's character and his goodness. It's also a certain hope based on the evidence that we have. God equips those that he calls, and he calls us to be his beloved children. It's as simple as that. He calls each one of us by name. He invites us to the hope that we have with Christ, the hope where uh, we have complete forgiveness through him. But not only that, that we're invited into this union with God, this loving relationship that we experience a bit now, but we will have for eternity. When I said eternal hope, it's a bit of a fallacy. It's an eternal hope in that we have eternity. But hope does stop. Hope stops when we meet God face to face. None of those other attributes do. 
but hope does. We won't need him when we are with him. We won't need hope. He'll be there. He'll be fully present for us. I want you to know that God has called you and he has equipped you for part in this body of Christ here. And he also wants to restore what is happening in each one of us. Now, I regularly get prayers for my hearing. I can't wait for him to restore that. But there's other stuff he does in the meantime as well where he is restoring us. Um, I know there are people here that possibly where hope does not feel a big uh, virtue coming up this Christmas time. I want you to know that God loves you so much he came down himself. He was a man of sorrows and he took the full punishment our sins deserved. He cares more than we'll ever comprehend. He loves you more than you'll ever comprehend. And you have a part to play in his church. Stuff that we do here, even just turning up on a Sunday, has this eternal significance that we can't quite fully understand, but it will become clear in the fullness of time. There's different types of people. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Different types of people where I'd like you to receive prayer for restoration. Some people would be sight for the blind. So if your image of God, if your vision of God is small, if it's like an old man, disinterested, I'd love you to come forward and receive prayer. I don't know if you'll be healed immediately, but I know that God's love will be ministered to you as you receive prayer. The next one I say... uh, with great trepidation and seriousness. If you're struggling with fertility, I would like you to come forward for prayer. Uh, It's a dangerous one to say as you're a pastor, because you don't want to do false hope for people. But we feel clearly as a church that God wants us to be praying for someone who is struggling with fertility. So please uh, allow us into your sacred journey and allow us to pray for you. A couple of other ones, tendonitis we have heard, um, and also depression. So if those things describe you, we would love you to come forward for prayer. I'm going to close us with a prayer. Life is like a journey. It's not quite as relaxing as sitting on a train. Life is just this long marathon, and we've just got to finish it together. But when we run a marathon, we take sips of water. When we get out of breath, we need to take deep breaths of air. And that's what being in the presence of God does. It will restore you, it will refresh you. People pranked me backstage. I'm not sure what they said. Uh, It felt nice. Uh, For about 10 minutes, I just had this vision of Christ coming back on a white horse. And I couldn't see him. It was too bright and too powerful. I could just see the front of the horse. And I just sat in that for 10 minutes. People, we can pray each other into the presence of God. So friends, I want you to stand. I'd love you to have restoration. Father God, may we behold your glory. May we behold you as the risen King. May we behold you that you call us friends. In Jesus' name.